Part Two of the Chronicles of Crime by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. George Cadell, executed for the murder of Miss Price, whom he had seduced. This delinquent was a native of Bromsgrove in Worcestershire, where he was articled to an apothecary. Having served his time, he proceeded to London to complete his studies in surgery, and he then entered the service of Mr. Randall, a surgeon at Worcester, as an assistant. Here he was admired for his extremely amiable character, as well as for the abilities which he possessed, and he married the daughter of his employer, who, however, died in giving birth to her first child. He subsequently resided with Mr. Dean, a surgeon in Lichfield, and during his employment by that gentleman he became enamoured of his daughter, and would have been married to her, but for the commission of the crime which cost him his life. It would appear that he had become acquainted with a young woman named Elizabeth Price, who had been seduced by an officer in the army, and who supported herself by her skill in needlework, residing near Mr. Cadell's abode. An intimacy subsisted between them, the result of which was the pregnancy of Miss Price, and she repeatedly urged her paramour to marry her. Mr. Cadell resisted her importunities for a considerable time, until at last Miss Price, hearing of his paying his addresses to Miss Dean, became more importunate than ever, and threatened, in case of his non-compliance with her wishes, to put an end to all his prospects with that young lady, by discovering everything that had passed between them. Hereupon Cadell formed the horrid resolution of murdering Miss Price. He accordingly called on her on a Saturday evening, and requested that she would walk in the fields with him on the afternoon of the following day, in order to adjust the plan of their intended marriage. Thus deluded, she met him at the time appointed, on the road leading towards Burton-upon-Trent, at the Nags Head public-house, and accompanied her supposed lover into the fields. They walked about till towards evening, when they sat down under the hedge, and, after a little conversation, Gadell suddenly pulled out a knife, cut the wretched woman's throat, and made his escape. In the distraction of his mind he left behind him the knife, with which he had perpetrated the deed, together with his case of instruments. On his returning home it was observed that he appeared exceedingly confused, though the reason of the perturbation of his mind could not be guessed at, but on the following morning, Miss Price being found murdered in the field, great numbers of people went to see the body. Among them was the woman of the house where she lodged, who recollected that she had said she was going to walk with Mr. Cadell, and then the instruments were examined, and were known to have belonged to him. He was in consequence taken into custody, and committed to the jail of Stafford, and being soon afterwards tried, was found guilty, condemned, and executed at Stafford on the 21st of July, 1701. Thomas Cook, executed for murder. The death of this person exhibits the singular fatality which attends some men who have been guilty of crime. Cook was the son of a butcher, who was considered a person of respectability, residing at Gloucester. He was apprenticed to a barber-surgeon in London, but running away before his time had expired, he entered the service of one of the pages of honour to William the Third, but he soon after quitted this situation to set up at Gloucester as a butcher, upon the recommendation of his mother. Restless, however, in every station of life, he repaired to London, where he commenced prize-fighter at Mayfair, 
which at this time was a place greatly frequented by prize-fighters, thieves, and women of bad character. Here puppet-shows were exhibited, and it was the favourite resort of all the profligate and abandoned, until at length the nuisance increased to such a degree that Queen Anne issued her proclamation for the suppression of vice and immorality, with a particular view to this fair, in consequence of which the justices of peace issued their warrant to the high constable, who summoned all the inferior constables to his assistance. When they came to suppress the fair, Cook, with a mob of about thirty soldiers and other persons, stood in defiance of the peace officers and threw brickbats at them by which some of them were wounded. Cooper, a constable, being the most active, Cook drew his sword and stabbed him in the belly, and he died of the wound at the expiration of four days. Hereupon Cook fled to Ireland, and as it was deposed upon his trial, while he was in a public-house, he swore in a profane manner for which the landlord censured him, and told him there were persons in the house who would take him in custody for it, to which he answered, "'Are there any of the informing dogs in Ireland?' we in london drive them for at a fair called mayfair there was a noise which i went out to see six soldiers and myself the constables played their parts with their staves and i played mine and when the man dropped i wiped my sword put it up and went away the fellow was subsequently taken into custody and sent to chester whence being removed to london he was tried at the old bailey was convicted and received sentence of death after conviction he solemnly denied the crime for which he had been condemned, declaring that he had no sword in his hand on the day the constable was killed, and was not in company with those who killed him. Having received the sacrament on the 21st of July, 1703, he was taken from Newgate to be carried to Tyburn, but when he had got to High Holborn, opposite Bloomsbury, a respite arrived for him till the following Friday. On his return to Newgate he was visited by numbers of his acquaintance, who rejoiced on his narrow escape. On Friday he received another respite till the 11th of August, but on that day he was executed. John Peter Dramatti Executed for the murder of his wife This unfortunate man was the son of Protestant parents, and was born at Saverdon, in the county of Foix, and province of Languedoc, in France. He received a religious education, but when he arrived at years of maturity, he left his own country and went into Germany, where he served as a horse-grenadier under the Elector of Brandenburg, who was afterwards King of Prussia. When he had been in this condition about a year, he came over to England, and entered into the service of Lord Haversham, and afterwards enlisted as a soldier in the regiment of Colonel de la Melonniere. Having made two campaigns in Flanders, the regiment was ordered into Ireland, where it was dismissed from farther service, in consequence of which Dramatti obtained his discharge. He now became acquainted with a widow, between fifty and sixty years of age, who pretended that she had a great fortune, and was allied to the royal family of France, and he soon married her, not only on account of her supposed wealth and rank, but also of her understanding English and Irish, thinking it prudent to have a wife who could speak the language of the country in which he proposed to spend the remainder of his life. As soon as he discovered that his wife had no fortune, he went to London and offered his services to Lord Haversham, and was again admitted as one of his domestics. His wife, unhappy on account of their separate residence, wished to live with him at Lord Haversham's, which he would not consent to, saying that his lordship did not know he was married. 
The wife now began to evince the jealousy of her disposition, and frequent quarrels took place between them, because he was unable to be with her so frequently as she desired. At length, on the ninth of June, 1703, Dramatti was sent to London from his master's house at Kensington, and calling upon his wife at her lodgings near Soho Square, she endeavoured to prevail upon him to stay with her. This, however, he refused, and finding that he was going home, she went before him, and stationed herself at the park gate. On his coming up, she declared that he should go no further unless she accompanied him, but he quitted her abruptly, and went onwards to Chelsea. She pursued him to the bloody bridge, and there seized him by the neckcloth, and would have strangled him, but that he beat her off with his cane. He then attacked her with his sword, and having wounded her in so many places as to conclude that he had killed her, his passion immediately began to subside, and, falling on his knees, he devoutly implored the pardon of God for the horrid sin of which he had been guilty. He went on to Kensington, where his fellow-servants, observing that his clothes were bloody, he said he had been attacked by two men in Hyde Park, who would have robbed him of his clothes, but that he defended himself, and broke the head of one of them. The real fact, however, was subsequently discovered, and Dramatti being taken before a magistrate to whom he confessed his crime, the body of his wife was found in a ditch between Hyde Park and Chelsea, and a track of blood was seen to the distance of twenty yards, at the end of which a piece of a sword was found sticking in a bank, which fitted the other part of the sword in the prisoner's possession. The circumstances attending the murder being proved to the satisfaction of the jury, the culprit was found guilty, condemned, and on the 21st of July, 1703, was executed at Tyburn. William Elby, executed for murder. This young man was born in the year 1667, at Deptford, in Kent, and served his time with a blockmaker at Rotherhithe, during which he became acquainted with some women of ill fame. After the term of his apprenticeship had expired, he kept company with young fellows of such bad character that he found it necessary to enter on board a ship to prevent worse consequences. Having returned from sea, he enlisted as a soldier, but while in this situation he committed many small thefts, in order to support the women with whom he was connected. At length he deserted from the army, assumed a new name, and prevailed on some of his companions to engage in housebreaking. Detection soon terminated his career, and in September 1704 he was indicted for robbing the house of Blank Barry Esquire of Fulham, and murdering his gardener. Elby, it seems, having determined on robbing the house, arrived at Fulham soon after midnight, and had wrenched open one of the windows, at which he was getting in, when the gardener awakening came down to prevent the intended robbery with a light in his hand. Elby, terrified lest he should be known, seized a knife and stabbed him to the heart, and the poor man immediately fell dead at his feet. This done, he broke open a chest of drawers, and stole about two hundred and fifty pounds, with which he repaired to his associates in London. The murder soon became the subject of very general conversation, and Elby, being at a public-house in the Strand, it was mentioned, and he became so alarmed on seeing one of the company rise and quit the house, that he suddenly ran away without paying his reckoning. The landlord was enraged at his being cheated, and learning his address from one of his companions, he caused him to be apprehended, and he was eventually committed for trial, on suspicion of being concerned in the robbery and murder. On his trial, he steadily denied the perpetration of the crimes with which he was charged, and his conviction would have been very doubtful, had not a woman with whom he cohabited became an evidence, 
and swore that he came from Fulham with the money the morning after the commission of the fact. Some other persons also deposed that they saw him come out of Mr. Barry's house on the morning the murder was committed, and he was found guilty, and having received sentence of death was executed at Fulham on the 13th of September, 1704, and was hung in chains near the same place. John Smith, convicted of robbery. Though the crimes committed by this man were not particularly atrocious, nor his life sufficiently remarkable for a place in this work, yet the circumstances attending his fate at the place of execution are perhaps more singular than any we may have to record. He was the son of a farmer at Malton, about fifteen miles from the city of York, who bound him apprentice to a packer in London, with whom he served his time, and afterwards worked as a journeyman. He then went to sea on board a man-of-war, and was at the expedition against Vigo, but on his return from that service he was discharged. He afterwards enlisted as a soldier in the regiment of guards, commanded by Lord Cutts, but in this station he soon made bad connections, and engaged with some of his dissolute companions as a housebreaker. On 5th of December 1705 he was arraigned on four different indictments, on two of which he was convicted. While he lay under sentence of death, he seemed very little affected with his situation, absolutely depending on a reprieve through the interest of his friends. An order, however, came for his execution on the twenty-fourth day of the same month, in consequence of which he was carried to Tyburn, where he performed his devotions, and was turned off in the usual manner. But when he had hung near fifteen minutes, the people present cried out, A reprieve! Hereupon the malefactor was cut down, and being conveyed to a house in the neighbourhood, he soon revived, upon his being bled, and other proper remedies applied. When he perfectly recovered his senses, he was asked what were his feelings at the time of execution, to which he repeatedly replied, in substance, as follows, that, when he was turned off, he for some time was sensible of very great pain, occasioned by the weight of his body, and felt his spirits in a strange commotion, violently pressing upwards, that, having forced their way to his head, he, as it were, saw a great blaze or glaring light, which seemed to go out at his eyes with a flash, and then he lost all sense of pain. That after he was cut down and began to come to himself, the blood and spirits forcing themselves into their former channels put him, by a sort of pricking or shooting, to such intolerable pain that he could have wished those hanged who had cut him down. From this circumstance he was called Half-Hanged Smith. After this narrow escape from the grave, Smith pleaded to his pardon on the 20th of February and was discharged. Yet such was his propensity to evil deeds that he returned to his former practices, and, being apprehended, was again tried at the Old Bailey for housebreaking. But some difficulties arising in the case, the affair was left to the opinion of the twelve judges, who determined in favour of the prisoner. After this second extraordinary escape, he was a third time indicted, but the prosecutor, happening to die before the day of the trial, he once more obtained that liberty which his conduct showed had not deserved. We have no account of what became of this man after this third remarkable incident in his favour, but Christian charity inclines us to hope that he made a proper use of the singular dispensation of providence evidenced in his own person. It was not infrequently the case that in Dublin men were formerly seen walking about who, it was known, had been sentenced to suffer the extreme penalty of the law, and upon whom strangers it may appear to unenlightened eyes 
the sentence had been carried out. The custom until lately was that the body should hang only half an hour, and, in a mistaken lenity, the sheriff, in whose hands was entrusted the execution of the law, would look away, after the prisoner had been turned off, while the friends of the culprit would hold up their companion by the waistband of his breeches, so that the rope should not press upon his throat. They would, at the expiration of the usual time, thrust their deceased friend into a cart, in which they would gallop him over all the stones and rough ground they came near, which was supposed to be a never-failing recipe in order to revive him, professedly, and indeed in reality, with the intention of waking him. An anecdote is related of a fellow named Mahoney, who had been convicted of the murder of a Connaught man, in one of the numerous Munster and Connaught wars, and whose execution had been managed in the manner above described, who, being put into the cart in a coffin by his Munster friends, on his way home was so revived, and so overjoyed at finding himself still alive, that he sat upright and gave three hearty cheers, by way of assuring his friends of his safety. A gentleman, who was shocked at this indecent conduct in his defunct companion, and who was, besides, afraid of their scheme being discovered and thwarted, immediately, with the sapling which he carried, hit him a thump on the head, which effectually silenced his self-congratulations. On their arrival at home they found that the friendly warning which had been given to the poor wretch had been more effectual than the hangman's rope, and the wailings and lamentations which had been employed at the place of execution to drown the encouraging cries of the aiders of the criminal's escape were called forth in reality at his wake on the same night. It was afterwards a matter of doubt whether the fellow who dealt the unfortunate blow ought not to have been charged with the murder of his half-hanged companion, but a justice being consulted, it was thought no one could be successfully charged with the murder of a man who was already dead in law. End of part two.